Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Running through the streets, solving all the mysteries, crushes and aliens, lots of other crazy things, laughing all the way. All we know is we don't know Kayla and Maggie, breaking down conspiracies, learning all the way, searching through time and space. And we're in. We're in. Welcome, Welcome to Mystery to Team Mystery Inc. <laughs> I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And I forgot how to do a podcast. It's fine. It's like riding a bike. Today we're all going to learn how to do it together. <laughs> this is first and foremost an educational podcast. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Yeah. It's edutainment. <laughs> edutainment. <laughs> Um, thanks for being patient. If you were joining us f- and you've been waiting for the second part, mm-hmm. um, we this past like month has just there's been a lot going on for us, for me mostly, but, <laughs> but for both of us. So thank you for being patient. Um, do you have any business? I just wanted to remind everyone that we are filming. And even though we're filming, I want to reassure everyone we're not going to be doing anything <laughs> differently. <laughs> It's all going to be the same. If you want to see how it's all the same, <laughs> watch our YouTube. Watch Everything it. You can watch it on our YouTube channel. Exactly the same. Mystery Team Inc. Any business? <laughs> no, I think I'm looking my best and ready to go. Okay, great. When we last left our hero, she had just flown across the Atlantic. She was the first woman to ever cross the Atlantic in a plane, but she was not flying it. This is disappointing to me. Learning that was disappointing. Oh, don't worry. It's going to get gonna better. It's going to get worse. Okay. It's going to get better. So while she was in England, she met a famous Irish aviatrix named Mary Heath. Love aviatrix. Can I just say this whole episode is basically just a who's who of cool aviatrixes uh, from I'm the so 30s. There's more than one. This whole episode is literally just... And I had to like make time to go because in my source for this episode and the last episode and the next episode this is going to be three parts i'm sorry for everyone who is just hearing that news i know it's coming as a shock and you are going to have to grieve the thought the the fact that you thought you'd be done with it by the end of this episode but it's going to be three parts and my source for these episodes she doesn't go too in depth about who they are. So I did like supplemental research mm-hmm. and every single one of them has like an amazing like log line of who they are. So oh my God, I'm so excited. This episode is mostly just like a who's who of cool female flyers. I love it. So while she was in England, she met famous Irish aviatrix Mary Heath, 
who herself held several first flight records. She was an Olympic athlete, a writer, a women's rights activist, and she was the first woman in England to receive a commercial pilot's license. (sighs) She let Amelia fly her plane and Amelia fell in love with it. And she was like, would you consider selling it? Mary sold it to her for $3,200, despite the fact that Amelia was actually in debt and didn't have any money. Women helping women. Yeah. And she was like, well, Amelia did not yet know how much her life was about to change after being the first woman to cross the Atlantic in a plane. And I think Mary knew. I think she was like, you're good for it. Like, just pay me back when you get your checks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Before she shipped it to Amelia in the U.S., she had a plaque affixed to it that said, to Amelia Earhart from Mary Heath, always think with your stick forward, which is a reference to when your plane stalls out, the stick actually controls the speed. So if it's stalling out, you want it to go faster so you can get more lift. If you mm. if you push up the speed when it's nosediving, you're going to go straight into the ground. But it's a reference to like when your plane stalls out. It's like your inclination is to slow down because your, your engine is sputtering. But if you push forward, you'll actually just catch lift from the air. So she wrote to Amelia from Mary, always think with your stick forward. When Amelia returned to the U.S., she went to Denison House, the settlement house where she was a social worker. The women there later said that she didn't even talk about her flight. She just asked how they'd been. She like missed them. And she stressed to the papers that she wasn't just an aviator. She was a social worker bringing goodwill from America to British settlement houses. She hadn't acknowledged yet that her life was about to change forever, but she was about to because Henry Ford gave her a limousine. President Coolidge sent her a telegram. She went on a tour around the Northeast with the pilot and co-pilot and was chaperoned by her publisher, George Putnam, and his wife, Dorothy. And the whole trip, no one gave a flying frick about the pilots. They were all just like (laughs) obsessed with Amelia. Um, This podcast is explicit. And so... Yeah, we're going to say stuff like flying frick. <laughs> I don't know why I started censoring myself so much in the past. I think it's because we started doing live shows and I wasn't sure in the beginning if I was allowed to say bad words. We're allowed to say swears. Yeah, we are allowed to say swears. Not too many, though, because my mom will get mad. <laughs> so, yeah, people and that's not totally true. Like people cared, but they were way more into Amelia than they were into the pilot and co-pilot. She published a series of articles in The New York Times about her flight. And before long, George had published her book, 20 Hours and 40 Minutes, Our Flight in the Friendship. It took 20 hours and 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Isn't that how long it takes now? <laughs> I think it takes like 10 hours now. Oh, but with security and taxiing yes. and blah, blah, blah. It's a 20-hour it's a travel day. <laughs> <laughs> the foreword for her book, her first book, reads... In rereading the manuscript of this book, I find I didn't allow myself to be born. May I apologize for this unconventional oversight, as well as for other more serious ones, and some not so serious? I myself am disappointed not to have been able to write a work, you know, Dickens' works, Thackeray's works, but my dignity wouldn't stand the strain. (laughs) I love her so much. Me too. Through George, her publisher, Amelia was able to get a job writing for Cosmopolitan as the first (sighs) aviation editor writing articles about flight. Does that exist today? I don't believe so. Like, was she first and only? Was she, like, (laughs) one of three? I don't know if there were more after her. Um, I think the book says she's the first, so there must have been another. But she also could have been the only. You're technically still the first. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. At any rate, she wasn't the one writing, like, 
how to use donuts to spice up your sex life. <laughs> like at the time, Cosmopolitan was like not what it is today. Was it um, like how how thick can your stockings be before you're a harlot? I'll give you an example of how different it was. It had articles about flight. Huh. I like that. Me too. But also makeup back then was just like pinching your cheeks and like saying a prayer, right? No, makeup back then was like lead paint, oh, yeah. <laughs> pinching your cheeks and saying a prayer. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, in 1928, Amelia decided to attempt her goal of flying across the U.S. Some of her stops were planned. Others were not. During her trip, she sent a telegram to her mother and to George Putnam every day of the trip. In several towns, she would land in a farmer's field and then she would just tell the farmer like she hated staying in hotels because people would always bother her and they'd be like, you can stay here. And then she'd be like, perfect. Thank you. Did she have to sleep in a barn or was it like... No, she would stay in like their guest room or whatever. What if they, if they don't have a guest room? How does she know? She would sleep on the couch. She would just stay at people's houses. Wow. She is bolder than I. I know. My mom would have to come get me in the middle of the night. <laughs> mom, can you come get me? I'm in Kansas. <laughs> Do you think anyone was like, get the flying frick off my <laughs> No, land. I don't think so. People loved her. She's she so was charming. She was a huge celebrity. Yeah. Everyone, she's like this. Oh my God, she's a celebrity. She just became a huge celebrity because she oh just flew across the Atlantic. It's like if Usher came and like knocked on your door and it's, was like, I don't have anywhere to, I hate staying in hotels. It's <laughs> like when, yeah, it's like when you hear about like a boy band's tour bus breaking down and they like come <laughs> knock on your, someone's door and they like, you need to use their phone. This is the 90s in case yeah. you forgot. <laughs> Uh, yes. I think Rachel Bloom did that in the wildfires a few years ago. She did. Yeah. I remember <sighs> I seeing an article so about much. it. Navigating this flight was difficult because her new plane from Mary Heath, which was an Avro avian, had an open cockpit. So she had to safety pin her maps to her knees. <laughs> and then when she was flying, if she flew off the edge of one map and onto the next, she had to change them midair. So at one point, her map of Texas just blew away <laughs> and she ended up overshooting Texas as a state and landing in New Mexico. Oh, my God. Um, after the town of Pecos, New Mexico, gave her fuel and a bed for the night, locals had to push her plane to help it take off. And one of them accidentally did put his foot through one of the wings and they had to glue a tablecloth over the hole so she could take off and finish her flight hold on i think i'm confused about plane technology history mm -hmm. were her plane were her wings at this point um, they were fabric, fabric i believe yeah <laughs> so how f high was she flying it might not have been fabric it might have been some kind of wood but but it's definitely yeah. something a tablecloth could, could cover yeah do we know how high she was flying i don't know at this point she goes on to break an altitude record later with a different plane how but it's did... 1928. Like, the Wright brothers f took off, like, a decade ago. We're, mm. like, not that far into aviation history. Okay. On the last leg of her trip um, land to Los Angeles, she had a forced landing in a field in Long Beach and flipped the plane over. Mm. We call that sunning. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. <laughs> she finally landed at Mines Field in Los Angeles at the end of her trip on the last day of the National Air Races and Aeronautical Exposition. She landed on the airstrip in between two male pilots who were straggling in from the competition. And when she landed, she got a standing ovation from the crowd, even though she wasn't <laughs> in the race. Uh, afterwards, she flew back to the East Coast and became the first woman to fly solo across the U.S. and back. Oh, my God. I love her so much. I really have a lot of questions about what these planes looked like. 
and how high she was flying and how fast. All of the planes were different and they all went different speeds. I mean, we're going to talk about it later, but it's like people entering races and stuff were like flying planes with like totally different capabilities. Against one another? Yeah. That seems unfair. I know. You're going to hear about unfair in a minute. It's 1928 and this is about a woman pilot. (laughs) So get ready. Great. I'll save my rage. Fuckle the buck up. Yeah, dude, you're going to need your rage later in this episode, I promise. During all of this, she was still engaged to Sam Chapman, who was still patiently waiting for her to decide to settle down one day. But their relationship was nearing its end, and Amelia told her sister in a letter that Sam should go out and do whatever makes him happiest. She said, I know what I want to do, and I expect to do it, married or single. Oof. In 1928, she ended their relationship. Sam Chapman never married, and according to Susan Butler, he never got over her, though they remained friends for the rest of her life. Oh, no. On July 1st of 1929, Bill Stoltz, the pilot of the Friendship, died while stunting in his plane. It had crashed into a roof and then straight into the ground. Yikes. He was carrying two passengers, and an autopsy revealed that he was drunk. Oof. He was 29. Amelia and Lou Gower attended the funeral. Remember when they flew across the Atlantic and she... Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to recap that anyway? Just yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when they flew across the Atlantic, she said there were like liquor bottles stashed in the plane. And later, George said that, or Amelia said that she almost to- told George about it because she thought they needed a replacement pilot, but she was afraid they were going to call off the whole flight. So mm-hmm. she just did it anyway. That's and George scary. later said it was either the smartest or dumbest thing she ever did. In 1929, the National Air Races and Aeronautical Exposition announced that for the first time ever, women would be allowed to compete. <gasps> but don't worry, it wasn't because of feminism. Oh. Do you know why it was? Um, because someone's wife wanted to do it. It was actually because of capitalism. Ah, uh, yes. The usual suspect. <laughs> So they had decided that if women flew, it would prove that aviation was safe and promote the industry. Let me just get my extra eyeballs out so yeah. I can roll them. Not in an Amelia Earhart way that's like, women should be allowed to do stuff outside the home. Just in like a, if we can convince wives to fly, husbands will fly. Yeah. Um, if your soft little muffin of a wife can fly, then you can too, you manly man. Okay, that's almost the exact quote. This is from the marketing director. Oh, God. If the feminine is considered the weaker sex and this weaker sex accomplishes the art of flying, it is positive proof of the simplicity and universal practicality of individual flying. It is the greatest sales argument that can be presented to that public upon which this industry depends for its existence. I mean, it's kind of a thing where, like, women are thrown into things and then they're like, oh, we can do that. Fine. It's ours now. Thank you. The Women's Air Derby, which was nicknamed the Powder Puff Derby. You know? By the press. I kind of love that. (laughs) Let's let's like take it back. Yeah. The Powder Puff Derby would start in Santa Monica, and then it would have various stops along the way and end in Cleveland, Ohio after nine days. But then the men were like, ooh, we don't want the women to get tripped up by the big mountains. So let's start (laughs) east of the Rockies. And actually, just for safety, they should all fly with a male navigator. Oh! So all the pilots who were planning to fly in the race were furious, and Amelia wrote a letter on behalf of them, saying, As for suggesting that we carry a man to navigate our own course through the Rockies, I, for one, won't enter. None of us will enter unless it's going to be a real sporting contest. 
how's a fellow going to earn spurs without at least trying to ride? I love the word choice of carry a man. Yeah, me too. So they reinstated the original rules. Did they let the ladies fly over the mountains? They let the ladies fly over the mountains. Wow, bold. Amelia needed a new plane because her plane was considered the toy class. So she purchased a new Lockheed Vega and entered the Derby. Did this one have um, tablecloth arms? I'm not sure. (laughs) Tablecloth arms. I'm not sure, but I know that she, when she, later in the story, when she gets a Lockheed Electra, it's the first all metal plane, civilian plane. So we're not even at all metal outside yet. You know what? Women can do stuff, but I wouldn't do this. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's totally fair. 19 women set off from Santa Monica. Um, An aviator named Marvel Crossan immediately had engine failure and lost her life due to a defective parachute. She was, at the time, the holder of the current women's altitude record and was known to be a talented flyer. Ruth Nichols, another pioneering aviator and friend of Amelia's, struck a tractor on a runway and destroyed her plane but survived. Who the fuck's tractor was it? I know. Well, they're, keep in mind, they're landing basically on like these little runways like across the Midwest and then they're taking off and they're a lot of them are like in farm fields. I know. I just feel like pl- there's like a big plane there and she's like, all right, here I go. And no one's like, give me <laughs> a second. I'll move my tractor. You know what it is? And this happened a lot of the time is it took a long time to take off and they didn't always know exactly how much runway they were going to need. Like how much like it was hard. Like sometimes takeoff would take minutes. And so you just be like driving at 100 oh. mi- not 100 miles an hour yet but at like 60 miles an hour for as far as you could until the plane lifted off so yeah. sometimes at the end of the runway there was just like a barn yeah and it was like <laughs> good luck i guess that makes sense poncho barnes who would later become the founder of the first movie stunt pilots union Ooh. another talented aviatrix overshot a runway and also destroyed her plane 16 women successfully made it to cleveland ohio There were other accidents, which the press obviously had a field day with. But Amelia pointed out that with 16 women crossing the finish line, the Powder Puff Derby actually had the highest percentage of finishers of any cross-country race at the time for women or men. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. Take that, men flyers. (laughs) Men flyers. We should start calling male pilots male pilots. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you don't do that? You don't go like, oh my God, I saw a male cop the other day. (laughs) Amelia came in third in that race. Susan Butler tells us that um, because she knew she had such a fast plane, she carried some of the personal baggage of the other competitors. (laughs) I love her so much. Carry other ladies' baggage, not a man. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Also, do you know how much having a male navigator would have weighed down their planes? Yeah, like 300 years of social progress. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Before the Derby, Amelia had spoken to Ruth Nichols about the need for a women's flying organization. Once the women landed in Cleveland, Amelia, Ruth, and several of the Derby flyers decided to make plans for one. Clara Studer, who made a weekly newsletter for women pilots, sent out a call asking for all licensed female pilots to gather on November 2nd at Curtis Field in Valley Stream, New York. 26 women showed up, and in deciding what to name the organization, Amelia suggested that that they name it whatever the final number of members to enroll was. No. And in the end, 99 women joined. No. 
And so the 99s were born. That's the cutest possible number it could have been. Today, the 99s have 5,100 members from 44 countries, and they still exist. I can't. I'm so glad it wasn't something stupid like 71. I know. I could make an entire episode about the 99s. They're so cool. It's It's just like 100. It's 99. (laughs) Women kicking butt at being pilots. I think we'll add this to our list of hour-long dramedies to make. Yeah, you're right. We have the... What do we call the one about sh- the sh- what is it shadows mm-hmm. night of shadows mm-hmm. band of shadows band of shadows yeah. initially the group was just representatives and no president but then a few years later in 1932 when they did decide to have a president Amelia was elected the first president obviously surprise do we think anyone there was like any woman who was like of course it was fucking Amelia <laughs> maybe but it seems like they all really liked each other uh huh there's one girl yeah there's always one girl like in um Dorothy. Uh, Martin. Oh, yeah. Who's like, God said not to talk shit about me. (laughs) Amelia's actually like not better than the rest (laughs) of us. Like, she's a good pilot, but like, so are like, why is she? Oh, because she did charity work. Yeah, I guess that's like really good. And she's really nice and like charming and beautiful and talented. But like, why does that mean that I can't? What's funny is that a lot of people who are fans of Amelia Earhart say that there were there were more technically proficient female pilots than her. Like she was but she was something she was like all of the things like there was nobody who was doing like taking the risks she was taking, having the the technical prowess that she had, like writing the books making the fashion line we'll get into it like she was just doing things that like nobody was doing what she was doing yeah she's like a full package right but that doesn't necessarily mean she's like the best pilot so i just like am not 100 <laughs> percent sure why <laughs> hmm. it's about building a brand we all know that girl though we do. who does not understand the importance of building a no. brand it's not just talent ladies <laughs> you have to trick them into thinking you can make them money that's true. In November of 1929, Lockheed let Amelia fly the new Vega, which had a 425 horsepower engine. Wait, when did Martin get into that picture? Lockheed and Martin. Isn't it Lockheed Martin now? I don't know. I assume they merged later on. Now Lockheed is like the military. But is it Martin? Did I make that up? Isn't Lockheed Martin? We can cut this out. I'm genuinely curious. I think it is Lockheed Martin, or it was. Like, it's like, when did Mayer join Metro Goldwyn, you know? We talked about that in our... Oh, I don't I don't even know my own middle name. What? <laughs> it's Martin. <laughs> yeah, remember in William Desmond Taylor, we talked about when Metro Goldwyn Mayer became Metro Goldwyn Mayer. In November of 1929, Lockheed let Amelia fly a new Vega with a 425 horsepower engine, in which she immediately broke the women's speed record. At the Van Nuys Airport. Ooh, we love the Van Nuys Airport. Very convenient. Not as crowded as no, LA. We love the Burbank Airport. Okay, so it goes like Burbank yeah. and then like yeah. Van Nuys and then like <laughs> dig a hole into hell. Yeah. And then the ninth level of hell, that's LAX. Yeah. Amelia and her publisher turned agent and manager, George Putnam, had grown steadily closer since the day they met. Trick them into thinking you can make them money. That's yeah. the whole thing. A few months after her transatlantic flight, he wrote to her, Your hats, they are a public menace. You should do something about them when you must wear them at all. Some of them are cataclysms, but I hasten to add the Pittsburgh bonnet is a peach, as are several of the floppy ones with bits of brims. He was like, your hats are a public menace, (laughs) but I do like the floppy ones. That's so cute. 
George had even been in her plane when she crashed it early in one of her cross-country solo flights, and she jokingly called him Simpkin, which was a reference to the cat from Beatrix Potter's The Tailor, Tailor of Gloucester, and he would sometimes sign his cables to her Simpkin. Do they fall in love, or is this just going to be a cool platonic relationship? Just wait. This is a girly podcast, so obviously <laughs> it has to have a romance. <laughs> a girly podcast. <laughs> I did have a makeup catastrophe this morning, <laughs> and I watched so many. Your makeup looks great. I think. Well, I cried into it. <laughs> that's what. That's the secret. Yes. Okay. Here's you what have I to learned. Putting tears in it. I learned this over and over again, and I forget. I want to do. I want like a smudgy like <laughs> eyeliner that kind of goes into like a little wing. Mm-hmm. And I try to do that with like my crayon liner and then I get it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. then I just like get it off with a Q-tip. And then the trick is fuck it up and then clean it off with a Q-tip. And then what's left. Yes. That's good exactly to know. what you want. Yeah. So just destroy it and then quickly try to clean up your mess and everything will be fine. Productivity tip. Um, move your crying block of your day into your makeup block of your day <laughs> and do both at the same time. <laughs> That'll save you 15 minutes. Then you can wake up 15 minutes early and do a quick yoga workout. <laughs> that make girl. Some, make some juice. This is the that girl. Oh, my God. Sometimes I try to be that girl. I had a conversation with a 25-year-old in my department, and she just, like, wants to be that girl so bad. And she is like, I can, you know, I used to wake up super early and exercise and, like, do all this stuff. And now I'm just so tired. And I'm like, dude, the era of that girl is We're over. We're done with that. We're Absolutely done with not. It. And she doesn't even want to like exercising is not like something she enjoys. She did it because no. she thinks she's yes. supposed to. And I was like, do you think that if you sleep in as much as you can and then come to work like after work, you'll have more energy and time to dedicate to like the things that you want to prioritize after work? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, then fuck getting up and cleaning. Yeah. If that's not who you are, that's not who you are. No. And if your body needs to rest, rest, rest. Wrist, I say. <laughs> <laughs> we are all that girl. We're just not all the same that. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. In 1929, George wrote an article about his best-selling aviation books, which included Charles Lindbergh's autobiography. And he wrote, the most dramatically interesting... Is it called If I Did It? <laughs> it's called If I Was Into Eugenics, <laughs> um, which he was. Uh, <laughs> this is what George wrote about... He said, the most dramatically interesting bit of manuscript that has passed over my desk was written under unique circumstances. To date, it is in a class all by itself and likely will remain for some time to come. This particular manuscript was written in a plane as it winged its way over the Atlantic. The author, of course, is Amelia Earhart. It's a humorful, modest volume set down with unusual literary skill. The same year, George attempted a first flight to Bermuda, but the whole thing was a disaster and Amelia was like, don't do it. They only made it to Norfolk, Virginia, and he later said that Amelia never once said, I told you so. She had, and I should have listened. (laughs) That's like one of the hottest things I've ever heard of a man saying. Yeah, I agree. In December of that year, Dorothy amicably divorced George because Dorothy had another man in her life. Who's Dorothy? George's wife. Oh. Ooh. (laughs) I know. In 1930... George's uncle died, and he was the one who was in charge of G.P. Putnam's son's publishing. Um, George's whole life was the publishing house, and he'd been working there for over a decade. And before his death, his uncle had drawn up a plan for George to buy out his shares and take over the company when he died. When his uncle died, 
his uncle's son, who was a mining engineer working in Africa, suddenly decided that he wanted to run the company, despite the fact that he never worked in a publishing house or expressed any interest in publishing the whole time his father was alive. He bought out his father's holdings and put himself in charge and laid George off. Uh. He then immediately ran the company straight into the ground and went bankrupt and had to sell it because he didn't know what he was fucking doing. That is so freaking annoying. George was heartbroken. It's it was like, like his whole life. Why? 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 Just ugh, stay in your lane. Yeah. George stayed single for about a year after that because he was newly divorced and then his uncle died and then he lost his job and the publishing company. According to George, he proposed to Amelia and she turned him down at least twice. Nice. She eventually changed her mind and accepted his proposal. And in January of 1931, she called a few of her guy friends together and she was like, if I get married, is it going to end my career? Because I'm concerned. And her guy friends were like, George is actually the person, he's like the person who started your career. Um, and he really loves being your manager and he loves publishing your books and your career is like really important to him. So actually your career is probably going to be like better. Yeah. Um, if anything, like, and she was like, fuck it. So on February 6th, <laughs> they called George's mom and they were like, we're coming to spend the night at your house and we're getting married there tomorrow. Surprise, you're throwing a wedding. Oh my God, I would lose it. I would be like, we're having Costco <laughs> cheese platters and LaCroix that I stole from work. You're out of the mini geishas. Um, excuse me. <laughs> I'm throwing my nuptials are happening tomorrow. Sheet cake? <laughs> Sheet cake, um, Costco cheese puff ball. It's yes. just crafty. The cra- I just want yes. crafty at my wedding. <laughs> yes, correct. At my backyard wedding. Oh, like Nature Valley granola bars. Yes. Some like stone people. Fruits. When you get married, people can throw that in the aisle instead yes. of rice. Like yes. throw the granola bark. Yeah. Crumblies. Neither of us are Jewish, but if we were, I would stomp on the glass and a Nature Valley granola <laughs> bar. George later wrote, she wore something as simple and forthright as herself and not new bought for the occasion. A brown suit, I think, and a casual crepe blouse with a turned-down collar. And as I remember it, brown lizard shoes. No hat, of course. Oh, my God. I would get married in my iconic hat. <laughs> no, I need to find was... an iconic hat right now. <laughs> you have one down there. I know, but I kind of need to make it like do like my own thing. Okay. No, that was their inside joke was that he hated her hat. That's why she should have done it. Yeah, uh... right. Well, listen. This is crazy. So just before the ceremony, she wrote him a letter. No. Oh. Which... He never revealed until after she died. Listen, it says, Dear GP, there are some things which should be writ before we are married. Things we have talked over before, most of them. You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter thereby chances in work which means so much to me. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I could do. I know there may be compensations, but but have no heart to look ahead. In our life together, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties which arise may be best avoided. Please let us not interfere with each other's work or play, nor let the world see our private joys or disagreements. In this connection, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all the confinements of even an attractive cage. I must exact a cruel promise." And that is that you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. I will try to do my best in every way. A.E. Holy. This is like shit. And yeah. that was just how she felt. She was like, this is, 
I have to do this for myself. And she wrote, and George accepted the terms. He was like, I love, he later said that basically it was like that, he saw it as like, that's who she was. Yeah. And he loved her for who she was. So this didn't like scare him away. He was just like, I accept. What did she say about an attractive cage? I love that line. She said, I cannot guarantee to endure at all the confinements of even an attractive cage. (sighs) And part of the reason that their relationship worked is because he let her do what she wanted to do. And that's the kind of person that she was. Yeah. It's not for everyone. Like, that's not the kind of relationship that I would want to have. But like, that's who she was and she knew it. And he loved her for who she was. And that was the relationship they were going to have. Yeah. For me, it's like, if you so much as look away from me (laughs) for a nanosecond, I assume that that's it. That's not true. You have at least 10 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) The two were married in a small ceremony at his mom's house. That year, Ruth Nichols became the top American aviatrix, taking away the altitude record from Eleanor Smith and the speed record from Amelia. She announced that she was going to follow the Lindbergh Trail and be the first woman to fly solo from the U.S. to Paris. It's such a huge bummer that Lindbergh, like, his side hustle was so egregious. I know. In June, Ruth flew to Harbor Grace, which is, if you remember, that's like the jumping off point for transatlantic flights where Amelia was before. She flew to Harbor Grace to make a transatlantic flight. But when she was making a scheduled stop in New Brunswick, she came down too late and crashed her plane into a cliff, wrecked it, and broke five vertebrae in her back. She had her plane repaired, and her back was put in a cast. And a few months later, she was flying again. Oh, wow. But by that time in the year, the weather was too bad for a transatlantic flight. So instead of crossing the Atlantic, she went and broke the long-distance record, (laughs) crossing the U.S. with her broken back in a steel corset. In the spring of 1932, she was ready to try to cross the Atlantic. There were other aviatrixes who also hoped to beat her to the punch, including Eleanor Smith, who had been the youngest licensed pilot in the world at the age of 16. And at 17 in 1928, on a dare, she'd flown her plane under all four of New New York City's East River bridges. For this, she received a 10-day grounding from the city of New York, and the (laughs) reprimand letter included a request for her autograph. (laughs) So good. What no one knew was that Amelia and George had already planned Amelia's transatlantic flight down to the last detail. They'd brought on an advisor, a pilot named Bernd Balkin, who you may remember because Bernd was the Norwegian pilot that George had crossed paths with on the ferry (gasps) who had told him about the flight in the front ship. Oh my god, I forgot about the Norwegian pilot! Meanwhile, Amelia was learning to fly blind using only the instruments on her plane because as we talked about last episode... She was used to flying using landmarks on the ground to know where she was. And when you fly across the Atlantic, there are no landmarks. And if you're flying in fog, you don't know what direction you're going. So she was learning to do instrument flying. Yeah. No one, not even Amelia's mother, was told about her plans for a transatlantic flight. And Amelia made no post-flight plans, period. There were no, like, parades. There were no stops. There were no... George didn't even go to Europe to meet her. In May, an ex-army flyer with a faster plane named Lou Rikers attempted a transatlantic flight and failed, running out of fuel in the dark and, quote, belly flopping his plane right next to the SS Roosevelt. He was injured, but I believe he survived. Ruth Nichols came to dinner at Amelia's on a Sunday, and they talked about transatlantic flights. But Ruth had no idea that Amelia was even planning a transatlantic flight. And what she really didn't know was that she was actually ready to leave any day now and was just waiting for the weather to clear up. (laughs) The next day, she was gone. Yes. At dusk on May 20th, five years to the day that Charles Lindbergh made the first ever solo flight across the Atlantic, Amelia Earhart climbed into her Lockheed Vega with some tomato juice and a thermos of soup and roared off into the eastern sky. 
And no. that's where we will pick no. back up after the break. <laughs> no. Uh, Tomato juice and soup. That's what you what would take. me? Yeah. We'll be right back. After these messages. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we're back. We're back. Welcome back to Mystery Team Inc. I'm so excited. <laughs> you ready? Yes. Okay. But I'm, I feel like I'm about to be sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Be sad. <laughs> An hour into her flight. Her altimeter failed. Hmm. The device that measures altitude, I wrote. (laughs) Very smart. (laughs) Thank you. So she flew by moonlight and used her eyes to determine how high above the ocean she was. I, something about flew by moonlight, maybe my first album or like, I just love that. I do too. Three hours into the flight, she smelled something burning and discovered flames coming out of her exhaust pipe. Turning around and navigating back to Harbor Grace and landing on an unlit field in the dark with a shit ton of gasoline that she was carrying actually seemed more dangerous than pushing forward, so she pushed forward. Four hours into the flight, she flew into a black storm cloud that was too high to fly over. The storm was supposed to be further south than her route, so it suddenly became apparent to her that she was not on course. The rain turned to ice and the controls froze over. But did the rain put the fire out? Hopefully. (laughs) The fire was like in her engine, so. I know. I don't know. Maybe it was like squirmed in. Yeah. The rain turned into ice, the controls froze over, and her plane went into a spin. (gasps) How long we spun, I do not know. I know that I tried my best to do exactly what one should do with a spinning plane and regain flying control as the warmth of the lower altitude melted the ice. Wow. What? She like so smart. Well, yeah, just fucking wait. So she started using the fuel mixture control and the carburetor to measure her altitude. I don't understand how engines work, but basically, from what I understand, and I read an FAA airframe power plant mechanics power plant handbook to understand this, and I still don't, but I feel like that's the last place to go to understand <laughs> this. <laughs> well, this is a plane from like 1930. I know, but the handbook would be like, anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like, uh, so add more gas. And if you're a woman, stop flying that plane. <laughs> so basically the way it works is because the air is much denser at sea level than at high altitudes, there is a, an ideal mixture of air to fuel in the, in the engine. And when they're, when it's too dense or not dense enough, then there's not the right like amount of oxygen getting in to cause the, the explosions that make an engine go. So there's a manual mixture control so that when you're flying at a different altitude, you can change how much air is getting in. So what she started doing was she used that control and the carburetor's response to tell how low she was flying. So, for example, I think what she was doing was basically opening it up all the way. And when the carburetor starts sputtering because the air is too dense, she knows she's too close to the ocean. Whoa. Right. 
doing this is really dangerous and it's hard because it, it's called leaning the fuel, quote unquote. So like at any point, you're in danger of stalling your engine. Whatever she did, it was fucking cool as hell and very smart. <laughs> And according to Susan Butler, she says, when Ben Howard, another fine pilot, heard about it later, he said, I thought, doggone it, I don't know many pilots, that is many men pilots, who would have had sense enough to do that, let alone a gal. So close. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But the point stands that, like, even most male pilots would not have thought of that. Yeah. After the sun rose, it was cloudy, but she was able to fly above the clouds. Then, when she flicked on her reserve tanks of gas... Gas started dripping down her neck, and she discovered the cockpit fuel gauge was defective. Realizing that she was not going to make it all the way to France, and with gas dripping down her neck, she headed for Ireland. She saw small fishing boats and realized that she was close to land, but she was worried that she was off course because that storm had been, uh, was supposed to be way farther south than her route. In actuality, it was the storm that was off course from the prediction. And when she landed her Vega in a pasture in Colmore, Northern Ireland, Ireland, she discovered she'd been exactly on course. Wow. After a 15-hour flight, five years to the day after Charles Lindbergh made the first solo flight across the Atlantic, Amelia Earhart became the second person to ever fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, the first woman to ever fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, and the only person who had flown across the Atlantic twice. That's so cool. Obviously, people were obsessed. It was a big rigmarole. When she landed, she was like, you guys will never believe. Apparently what happened is... What I did with the fucking altimeter. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently what happened is she landed in a farmer's field and a pasture in uh, Northern Ireland for like sheep, I think. And the owner of the farm went out to check it out and the wife like stayed inside because she was like busy doing something. Oh my God, can you imagine? And she apparently popped out of the cockpit and said, I've come from America. (laughs) (laughs) The only person who'd ever done it. I'm sure the guy in Ireland was like, wait, what? I also didn't write this, but she didn't bring any money or luggage or change of clothes. (laughs) It's just her tomato juice and soup. She had to borrow money to send a telegram to George and say I made it. Well, at least they knew she was good for it. Yeah, true. She also... um, well, George had given her a $20 bill before her flight. And she said, well, that's not a very big uh, allowance for a trip to Europe. And um, when she landed, she used that 20 to like exchange for money to like pay for a cable. And then once like people came and met her and it was like she's Amelia Earhart, she got money, went and paid the guy so she could have the 20 back, signed it and gave it to George. Oh, <laughs> as a souvenir that's so cute in july of 1932 the same year she decided to attempt a record-setting transcontinental flight from los angeles to newark i've done that flight (laughs) her goal was to beat frank hawk's record of 17 hours and 38 minutes because of a fuel feed issue she was forced to land in columbus ohio the issue took an hour and a half to fix and she still landed in newark in 19 hours and 14 minutes which was good enough to set the women's continental speed record. Her flight time was 17 hours and 59 minutes, which was only 21 minutes over the record. George, meanwhile, had actually gotten himself a job at Paramount on the editorial board. Wow. Because sometimes when your career falls apart, you pivot. He stayed in L.A. while Amelia went back to the East Coast. During this time, she developed a very close relationship with Gene Vidal, the father of Gore Vidal. Um, He was an athlete who had graduated first in his class with a degree in civil engineering. 
And after an illustrious career as a West Point football and track star, he had gone into the air service and become West Point's first flying instructor. While in the army, he competed in the 1920 Olympics. Um, it's implied that their relation, the 1920 Olympics. In what sport? I think in track. Okay. It's implied that their relationship was romantic. Um, and Jean would often come visit her. Jean would often come visit her. And Gore Vidal remembered her as a fixture in his childhood and they would bond over poetry. Oh. Apparently he was in an Edgar Allan Poe phase and she was like, no, there's a lot of like way <laughs> different like female poets you should be reading. That's so good. I know. If you care about someone, get them out of their Poe phase. <laughs> also, don't forget Amelia herself. She loved poetry and she wrote several poems, one of which I will read in this series. Maybe Amelia is that girl. <laughs> she has like so many interests that she just does for fun. She doesn't monetize her side I hobbies. Know. She's like opting out of side hustle culture. She really is. She's this girl. <laughs> in August, she decided to try for another transcontinental flight. She made the trip in uh, nonstop in 19 hours and seven minutes and racked up another title, which is first woman to fly nonstop across the U.S. Do we think that the guy who got like 17 hours and whatever, 40 minutes, whoever had the mm -hmm. record, did he just have a faster plane? Probably. That's dumb. Yeah. I feel like we need to like I know. regulate these competitions. <laughs> I know. The same year, Amelia met Eleanor Roosevelt. Wow. Just a few weeks after FDR was elected. Eleanor was kind of depressed at the time because she didn't really want to do all the first lady duties. Yeah. She wanted to like go have her own life. First lady duties. <laughs> no, I get that. I would hate that. If you don't know much about Eleanor Roosevelt, she she, she was like a huge radical in her time. She was a human rights activist. She fought for poverty alleviation, workers' rights, access to education, civil rights. Before he was president, when FDR developed paralysis, she was the one who convinced him he needed to stay in politics. And she would actually give speeches in his place when he couldn't because he was ill. So cool. She also later traveled to the front lines during World War II and was the first U.S. delegate to the United Nations. I could do a whole episode about her, but she's not a mystery. She's just a badass. Um... It's a mystery how she's so bad at Yeah, there you go. When she met Amelia, they obviously immediately became friends. And Eleanor was like, I want to learn to fly. Amelia was like, I'll be your instructor. Oh, yes. The two arranged everything. She got the vision test. Amelia arranged for a plane for her to learn on. Amelia got her learner's permit. And she sent it to Amelia with a letter saying, basically, all that's left to do is to convince FDR to like support this endeavor. But ultimately, he convinced Eleanor not to go through with the lessons because they couldn't afford to buy a plane. President couldn't afford to buy a plane? <laughs> no. This country's garbage. <laughs> I think in the book it said that, like, they could have asked his mom for money, but, like, he didn't, like, they didn't want to ask his mom I for don't want to ask my mom. I'm president. <laughs> I'm president. I'm not asking my mom for plane money. Uh. Babe, do you need a plane? We just got a horseless carriage. <laughs> Just kidding. Cars. Let's care. Cars existed, but Henry Ford was still alive. Like, so it's like the horrors of what Amazon is going to become. Yeah. They're going to look back and be like, this is when you still had to go on a computer yeah. to use Amazon. <laughs> when you couldn't just like press beep boop in your brain and <laughs> when you couldn't just blink it. at an yeah. object and have it appear yeah. in your hand. So Eleanor was bummed, but then one night after a fancy dinner, Amelia was like, Do you want to go for a night flight? 
she arranged for a pilot to take them up and they with their husbands they didn't even bother to change out of their evening gowns oh my god they all dressed up they just like got into a plane and then eleanor got to sit in the cockpit with the pilot and he like showed her all the controls so she could like learn how to fly even though oh my she god what were they wearing i don't know but i imagine it was pretty fancy <laughs> I, th- I think it's probably pretty fancy but, but i think it was probably pretty fancy Amelia did a lot of stuff that I don't even have time to cover in a three-part series. She worked for multiple commercial airlines to help them get off the ground. She was, um, uh-huh. uh, wrote, lol. Um, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> she not only was, she was like their publicity and their complaint department, and she would field complaints about the airline. Like, she was the person who, like, wrote the letters that were, like, tried to help people, like, resolve their complaints with the yeah. airlines. They were like, this miracle is <laughs> too incredible. <Yeah. laughs> Can you make this more inconvenient right? and more expensive, please? Literally. Because um, at the time, people were afraid to fly. Like, it wasn't because it wasn't super safe. And so she was like, you guys, this is the future. I promise. So she worked for several different airlines. She made more transcontinental flights. She gave lectures all over the country about women in STEM and women in flight. In one year alone, she gave 136 lectures in between her flights. Oh, my God. Um, which is actually how she met some of these people that were so pivotal in her life. I don't have time to cover all of them. If you want to read about all this stuff, Susan Butler's East of the Dawn is 500 pages and you can learn everything that happened. Despite the alleged affair with Jean Vidal, which if it existed, George definitely knew about it. George but and they Amelia, had a prenup. I know. They had a letter. Yeah. George and Amelia stayed super close and super in love. Helen, who did most of the secretarial work for Amelia... Remembered looking out the window in 1932 and seeing George running down the lawn with Amelia in a wheelbarrow. Oh. And they were laughing. And this st- is my dream, love. This Don't is- put me in a wheelbarrow. That scares me, but. I just love it because this is a woman who, like, flies the first planes, but she, like, gets a thrill out of, like, going down the, like, lawn <laughs> yeah. in a wheelbarrow. The thrill is doing it with George. Exactly. Oh. Another thing I don't have time to go into is that in 1933, Amelia launched her own fashion line. I need you to go into this. She sewed it by hand with one seamstress on her old sewing machine in her New York apartment. It was carried in several department stores. She eventually had to shut it down because she basically just didn't have time to keep it up. And it was the depression. So obviously, like, people weren't buying stuff as much. Did you see any photos? There are photos. I will post them on the Instagram. Can you give me, like, just like a vibe? They're basically her signature outfits. It's like <gasps> like tailored pants, like crepe blouses. She With the had big like a, collar. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I but want to wear This is that. the best part. Because it was the Depression and women couldn't afford even the... It was moderately priced. Because it was the it was Depression. It like Macy's, but not yeah. Nordy's. Yeah. And because it was the Depression and women couldn't afford that, she published her sewing patterns in the Women's Home Companion magazine so women can make them at home. <gasps> But if you bought them, they had a little tag that had her name in cursive and a little plane flying through it. It's <laughs> so cute. It's really fucking cute. How do we get one I'll of those? I'll post it on the Instagram. I, I think if you it. got your hands on anything with that tag in it now, it's probably worth millions of dollars. I would pay millions of dollars for that tag. Me too. Okay, back to flying. So in 1933, the Bendix, which Susan Butler calls the Kentucky Derby of air races, decided to allow women to enter. <gasps> So the Bendix was a cross-country race. Every year it alternated where it started and ended. Like, it changed directions. This year it went from New York to California. In 1933, they decided to allow women, and Amelia and Ruth Nichols both entered. 
Ruth encountered mechanical problems with her landing gear, and it took her three days to complete the trip. Amelia's motor started heating up over Kansas due to headwinds, and she was making such bad time that when she landed to refuel, she just ended up spending the night. And the next day, her hatch blew open, and she had to land to have it repaired. By the time she made it to L.A., she had to circle for half an hour because there was a trophy race happening at that exact moment, and she'd missed the 6 p.m. deadline for the Bendix. But she finished, and she was the first woman to ever compete in the Bendix and finish. I was just thinking, like, do we think men were like, (laughs) see? You're about to find out. So predictable. The following year, Cliff Henderson, the managing director of the National Air Races, banned women from entering because a 26-year-old woman named Florence Klingensmith died during a trophy race when the fabric of her wing gave out. Worth noting that her GB plane, which is what they were called, was known to be a dangerous plane, and hers was the third GB plane to crash in three days. The other two were piloted by men, and no one said men shouldn't be flying. But Cliff Henderson, who was known as the Barnum of aviation, and if you know anything about P.T. Barnum, you <laughs> that know that's is not probably, a compliment. It's, true in, it's probably true in multiple senses of the word. Also worth noting, Cliff Henderson and his brother Randall founded Palm Desert, California in the 1940s. Boo! They were like, you know what the desert needs? Grass. Grass. <laughs> Just a- the, the plant that needs two inches of water a week? Let's put it in the desert. Okay, so I'm lo- what I'm seeing here is like a lot of dry dirt, mm-hmm. sand, and I think what we should probably put here is like golf courses mm-hmm. and pools. Retail. I'm seeing retail. Yes, I'm seeing nightclubs <laughs> and everything and anything that requires water. This is this the, the spot. spot. I always say that Palm Springs is like the darkest <laughs> example of human hubris. <laughs> I've said is, it before. It is, yeah. And the fact that it was founded by a fucking airplane Barnum yeah. makes so much sense. Yes. It is truly the hardest place for me to... Like, it's... The guy who said women aren't strong enough to fly planes <laughs> was like, grass is definitely strong <laughs> enough to live in the desert. Unbelievable. It's like, it's so emotionally dark for me to go there. That it's yeah, like, I, I hate it so much. I think maybe you need to go into civil, like, into, uh, like, city design. Yeah. It, I would just be like, fucking stop. You're like, don't put that there. You're like, whatever you're going to put there, don't put it there. Oh, is that the desert? Leave it. That's yeah, for lizards. Leave it. <laughs> that's for lizards. <laughs> leave it. That's for lizards. Put windmills up for sure. Yeah. But the rest of it is for lizards. So remember Cliff Henderson because he's going to come back. No, I don't want to that's remember all him. Good, all good villains do. <laughs> In 1934, Amelia was giving a speech attended by the president of Purdue University, Edward C. Elliott. He was really invested in advancing women's careers and also in aviation. And after hearing Amelia speak, he said to her, we want you at Purdue. And she said, I'd like that. A few months later, he sent her an offer. He wanted to create a department dedicated to the study of careers for women and make Amelia the department head. She's also been fighting for like, and most of her speeches were about like women in STEM, basically, and like how there were careers for women if they wanted them. This is such a cool life because it's like, I think we talked about this the other day, or you sent me a quote about it where it's like, don't let your job or like your compensation define your worth. Yeah. 
And I think it's a cool way to like, sh- and I have this deep insecurity where I think that I don't have like a thing that I'm yeah. good at. And I'm surrounded by people who are like very, very good at one specific thing. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't have that. Yeah. And I kind of am like, well, like if I was friends with Amelia Earhart, I would be like, well, I can't fly planes that yeah. good. <laughs> but she's also like doing all these other things that she's passionate about and good at. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of life has kind of been erased by capitalism. I agree. Well, we've talked about this before. Like, I ran into a problem where I had monetized all my hobbies and I didn't have anything that, like, brought me joy because everything became a job. Yeah. Um, And then there's that Oscar Wilde quote that I really like that's, like, if a person becomes a judge or whatever, their punishment is that they're a judge. But, like, if you never become anything, your reward is that you can always just be whatever you are. Yeah. It's hard because capitalism just crushes your spirit. Capitalism has ruined nearly everything. Yeah. Agreed. So, yeah, part of the offer was that he was going to let her choose the other educators who'd be part of the department. Because part of the problem, and I don't remember if I talk about this, but a lot of women in STEM were basically like bullied out by their professors and their counselors who were just like, talk them out of pursuing (laughs) STEM. Sure. Yeah. Now they're just being bullied out by their peers. Yeah. Well, that was also a huge problem. She would also get to give constructive advice on other programs about making them more inclusive and acceptable to women. Uh, More acceptable to women is not the word I wanted. More inclusive and accessible to women. Yes. And she would be chief consultant for the university's work in aeronautical engineering. That's so cool. So he was like, you don't like he was like, I want you to do women's stuff. And also you get to do plain stuff. I wish someone would let me do lady stuff and also plain stuff. I know. Not plain stuff. I'm scared of planes. She accepted, obviously. Um, but this was not a small task because that year before she joined the Purdue personnel department secured 84 jobs for graduating men and brought out recruiters who recruited men into another 38 jobs. Guess how many women, women they got jobs for. I'm going to guess zero to one. The answer is four. Oh, they exceeded my very, very low expectations. They brought out no recruiters. Surprise. And most of the jobs were in home ec. (laughs) Because that's what women were trained for. It's like a parody. Yeah, that, that's what women were trained for at the time. And if they were in STEM, they were like kit counseled out, basically. And there was a lot of pushback about helping women get jobs because it was the depression. So there were everybody was already out of a job. So they were like, if women take jobs, what will the men do? So by this time, women had made many of the first flights in aviation. And really... The final frontier was crossing the Pacific Ocean. No one had done it solo, period. Have you ever done a flight across? Not personally, obviously, but have you ever flown across the Pacific? Not the whole way. Just Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. It's far, dude. Yeah, it's really far. (laughs) (laughs) So Amelia decided to make a flight from Honolulu to California. That's far, dude. That's like far to begin with. I know. Amelia and George packed up their home in New York and they moved to 10513 Valley Spring Lane, which is in North Hollywood to Luke Lake. And oh it is still there. God. In December, Helen Rishi, a member of the 99s, became the first woman to become a pilot for a scheduled airline, a.k.a. the first female commercial airline pilot. That's a, which what airline? It doesn't exist anymore. And I don't remember what it was called. Amelia and George made arrangements for the flight for her Honolulu flight, installing a radio in her plane, because until this point, radios were too heavy to fly. God. Civilian planes didn't have radios at this point in history. That's so crazy. Only military. 
And even that was like fairly recent. Hers was the first civilian plane to have two-way radio capability. Wow. Can you imagine being on such, so on the cutting edge of a field that you're like, will you install a two-way radio in my plane so I can fly from Honolulu to LA? Because no one has done any of this before. That's so cool. At this point, 10 flyers had been killed in attempting to fly between Hawaii and California. How, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how much farther is it across the Atlantic than it is from Hawaii to the West Coast? I'm not positive, but I do have a time for this flight, so maybe that will help us. Yes. Um, she took off from Honolulu at 4.30 p.m., all the ships traveling between Honolulu and the mainland kept their searchlights on all night so she could see them and use them to navigate. <sighs> and each one that saw her was prepared to radio her position to the world because everyone was like tuning into the radio. This to made me cry. <laughs> her radio was tuned into the Honolulu broadcasting station HGU. And at one point during the flight, George radioed to her and said, <gasps> A.E., the noise of your motor interferes with your broadcast. Will you please try to speak a little louder so we can hear you? Because we stand a husband who cares about audio quality. <laughs> That's my dream. <laughs> she said that hearing his broadcast was really one of the high points of the flight. I think I would weep. I am yeah, a little misty. <laughs> <laughs> On January 12th, 1935, Amelia Earhart touched down at Oakland Airport, where over 10,000 people awaited her arrival after completing the first solo flight ever made between the Hawaiian Islands and the American mainland. She was in the air for 18 hours and 16 minutes. Jesus Christ. Amelia stayed in California until April when she flew to Mexico City to attempt another record-setting flight from Mexico City to New York. Because of the elevation of Mexico City and the amount of gas that she would need for the flight, she needed a runway that was much longer than one that existed at the time, so the military in Mexico made one for her in the lake bed of Lake Texcoco. They have the resources to do such cool things, mm -hmm. and they don't choose to do them. <laughs> That's such a cool way to use military budget. I agree. <laughs> no one had successfully flown from Mexico City to the New York area because of that elevation gas problem. Charles Lindbergh had made it all the way to Washington, D.C., so during her flight, a crowd gathered at Hoover, at Hoover Airport, thinking that maybe she would touch down there like Charles Lindbergh had done. <laughs> As she flew over Washington, Jean Vidal radioed to her and said, you've done a splendid job, so come down. To which she radioed, thanks for the invitation. I'm going through. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> when she touched down at Newark Airport an hour later, Crowds rushed her plane once again. She had just broken three records, set a new nonstop record between Mexico City and Newark, a new women's nonstop record for the distance, and a new speed record from Mexico City to Washington, beating Charles Lindbergh's time. And she didn't even fucking stop. No. That is painful. I love her. I love that. In September of 1935, the airline pressured Helen Rishi into resigning. In Why? January, the Airline Pilots Association had rejected her application for membership, saying that the idea was preposterous, that women weren't strong enough to handle a plane in bad weather, and, quote, if the practice of hiring women to pilot airliners continued, where would that leave the men? <laughs> On That's the fucking a quote. ground. That's a fucking quote. That from is their... so embarrassing. I love the argument that it's like women are physically incapable of, like, lifting things. And I'm like, ugh, 
Some men are so fragile. I swear to God, so this is why fragile. they should not be allowed to be president. Okay. <sighs> Can you believe Can you imagine being so insecure? God. Uh, the Airline Pilots Association threatened to strike. And as it's clear, they were all men. So James Condon, the head of the airline, folded and told them that he only hired her for publicity purposes. You know what's so embarrassing about that is that they have jobs. Yeah, I know. You're going to like they're going to be fine. I don't understand. He knew that he would get blowback from the public. So he basically reduced her schedule to like one flight a month and had her make appearances at luncheons and give tours of the airport. Oh, oh my God. She resigned after a few months. I would, too. That's awful. Amelia wrote a stern letter about it, which the press got a hold of, and it made front page news. Then she organized a protest in Washington, D.C. Yes. Which she flew to. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1936, Amelia acquired a brand new Lockheed Electra. She was one of the first people to have one, along with Howard Hughes. She took it to Los Angeles to enter the Bendix. Yes. Because that year, they had decided to let women enter again. And she brought Helen Rishi as her co-pilot. Yes! Women lifting other women up. Literally. (laughs) In a plane. (laughs) Seven planes entered the Bendix that year, including Amelia's friends Louise Thaden and Blanche Noyes. They entered as co-pilots, and Laura Ingalls also entered flying solo. We don't love Laura Ingalls because during World War II, she worked with Germany. Boo. Boo. But the other four planes were piloted by men. Just after takeoff, a bolt on Amelia and Helen's hatch came out, and the hatch blew open. It took them two hours to fix it, and according to Amelia, the wind almost sucked them out of the cockpit. Oh, my God. That's one of my greatest fears. Yeah. When they stopped to refuel, they had to have it wired shut, and they lost a lot of time. Hmm. Louise Thaden and Blanche Noyes's heading indicator, which is basically like the compass that tells them where what direction they're going, and their radio broke just after they learned that one of their refueling stops was not usable due to fog. With no heading indicator and no radio, Louise and Blanche dodged a bunch of thunderstorms. And when they landed in Los Angeles, they were absolutely sure that they were in last place, or as Louise said, sure that they were the cow's tail of the race. <laughs> That's a cute way to say it. When they climbed out of the plane, they were met by what Susan Butler calls the crestfallen faces of Vincent Bendix and Cliff Henderson. <gasps> Cliff said, quote, I'm afraid you won the Bendix race. Oh. oh. I wish you hadn't, but if it had to be a woman, I'm glad it was you. Oh. And then Laura Ingalls landed right behind them and took second place. This has been a roller coaster of 10 seconds. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the man who brought grass to the desert. (laughs) You know, people show you who they are. (laughs) It's true. If they bring grass to the desert, it doesn't get better from there. (laughs) (laughs) Amelia and Helen came in fifth. But her friends said that you could sense her pride that Blanche and Louise had won the race. Blanche said, I don't think there was a jealous bone in her body. I think I want to name my children Blanche and Louise. <laughs> I know. I was always planning on Louise. Don't yeah. take that. I won't. But I think Blanche is such a... Blanche needs to like go... It needs to make a comeback. Yeah. Yeah. And all the women were felt super vindicated. And Blanche, by the way, weighed like 85 pounds. So this was like, oh, not strong enough to fly a plane? <laughs> she beat all the men! She beat all the men. I would also argue, if anything, being lighter is probably better for a plane. Flying planes made out of tablecloth. What the women didn't know was that at this time, Amelia was already one month into making plans for her next big flight. Louise Thaden would later remark It is the only major flight she ever attempted for purely selfish reasons. She wanted to fly around the world because it would be fun. <laughs> 
Don't you dare say. And, and that's, that's where, where we will we'll... pick back up with the stunning conclusion of our three-part series on the life of Amelia Earhart. I love her I and love I her. hate men. <laughs> Today's heroes. Yeah. Amelia Earhart. Women in general. Plains. Purdue University. Purdue University. Losers. I mean, wait. <laughs> Villains. <laughs> Capitalism. Yeah. And men. End of list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I can't believe I finally met the man whose fault Palm Springs is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Technically, he founded Palm Desert. But yeah. I I did not realize going into this research how much stuff she did. She did so much stuff. Her life is so much more interesting than her death. And the only thing we fucking know about her is about is her death. Yeah. She accomplished so much. Like, she was an activist. She was a social worker. She was, like, fighting for women's rights, women in STEM. At a time, by the way, we're not even in the 50s yet. Yeah. We're not even in, like, women going to work in the factories in World War II yet. I don't think we as a society, like, talk about her through the right lens. No, I agree. What also really inspires me about her is that she seems like she just had so much fun. Me too. Like, I know I'm r- railing against capitalism a lot today, but I've been railing against capitalism a lot for the past like two months on like an hourly basis. And I just feel like we don't have fun anymore. I know. I feel that way too. There's no like play in yes. our lives. Like we've, cr- we've like, because you have to start cutting corners when you're like trying to stay alive. And the first thing that goes is play. Yeah. Like the first thing that goes is fun. And she did things for the fun of it. Yeah. She actually, that's the title of her memoir, I think, is for, for the, the fun, fun of it. <gasps> yeah. I, I could that. be wrong. I have to double check. But she just did stuff because it was exciting and fun and yeah. she wanted to do it. And then like when she wasn't doing exciting, fun stuff, she was like working to advance women in society and like aeronautics and advance aviation. Like people were afraid to fly. And she was like, you can do it. Anyone can do it. Um, there's a letter someone wrote to her, like a young woman who was like, I want to fly. And she wrote her back a letter and she was like, you can fly. And it's not that it wasn't hard because it was really fucking hard. It seems like it was never a question in her mind because she was doing stuff that was so, I mean, it was dangerous. Like these planes literally like would just explode sometimes. And she. Like the fact that you're like the top of your plane could blow off and then your (laughs) radar could fail within like two seconds of each other. And you're like, oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. If my car maintenance light goes on, I'm like, this is it. Yeah. I'm walking. Me too. This is amazing. I can't wait I for the her. next part. So, yeah, the next part is the next part. Mm. We'll get there. I'm sad already. But I just really wanted to devote more time to her accomplishments and, like, who she was as a person. Because also, even just, like, setting all her accomplishments aside, like, she's just such an incredible person. The person who goes to the settlement house after her transatlantic flight. You know, like, the person who doesn't talk about herself. She, like, asked how the women were doing. She's just such a fascinating person. She's like cool. She's very cool. (laughs) And not like in a cool girl way. No, she's just cool. She's just cool. I love her. I love her too. Very good research. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. And watching if you're watching. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuckle the fuck up. (laughs) Ass (laughs) moochie. One day I'll learn how to do that accent. You can do it. You can fly. That was good. It was okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can do it. I'll work on it. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.